Jericho Road is a podcast and a Sunday school class and a ministry of St. Luke's Episcopal Church in Birmingham, Alabama. These days, we're covering all the books of the Bible in a class that we're calling Bible Basics. Most people want to read the Bible, they just don't know how. Let's see if we can help. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to Jericho Road. We're going to try something new this winter and spring semester that we're calling Bible Basics. I found that at the church, lots of people want to read the Bible. They just don't know how, or perhaps they only read the same thing over and over and over again, right? A favorite gospel, perhaps, or a passage from the Psalms when there's so much more in there. Like, why should we read, say, Haggai, right? Or one, another one of the prophets or one of the letters from Paul. So we're going to try to look at the whole of the Bible and just kind of tell you what's there, what's in it, why should you read it, and maybe we can have some fun along the way. I tell every third grader here at the church that the Bible is a library of books. It's not really a book. It's a library, and the word Bible means books. And this is why it's hard to read from start to finish, although some of you have. Uh, But that would be like going to the library and pulling a book off the shelf and then pulling another book off the shelf and another book on the shelf until you run into a reference book or a law book. And those books are harder to read. So in the library, you do have some history and you do have some law and you do have some prose and you do have some poetry. And then in the backs of the library, you've got letters, letters mostly from St. Paul, but also from some other students of Paul, perhaps, or people associated with Paul. So this first podcast on Bible basics is my favorite of the letters. Okay, It's Paul's letter to the Philippians. But before I talk about the church in Philippi and the letter to the Philippians, a word about letters in Rome. Paul didn't invent the letters. It's, it's like the letters in the backs of our Bible are a little piece of archaeology that's very, very common in their world. In the first century, which would be the world of Paul and the world of Jesus, the Roman Empire stretched across the entirety of the Mediterranean, so that the Mediterranean Sea is really a Mediterranean lake, a Roman lake, if you will, a very passable and easily transportable body of water with also good highways that would connect these roads like a string of pearls, and these are highways that you can travel to today. One of these, the Via Ignatia, is an east-west road that you can actually uh, walk on and sometimes drive on. The the road is, is paved either alongside or over that original route, just like Paul would have walked as he walked into the uh, town of Philippi. You can actually see pavements from that era with chariot wheel ruts, and you can imagine Paul's sandaled feet as he traveled from city to city to city to city. And around the year 8051, Paul made the second of his loops that we call missionary journeys, this time into Europe and first landing in this northeastern Grecian city of Philippi. Now, we call them missionary journeys, but I I want to expand our understanding of what's happening here in the latter part of the first century, especially with a guy like Paul. They were really more like business trips because Paul, frankly, lived in two worlds. I'm not so sure we don't all live in two worlds. We have our work world and we have our family world, and sometimes we have our vacation world and sometimes we have our religious world. Uh, We sometimes can live in many worlds, and Paul definitely uh, lived in two First, there is the Paul, the zealously religious person. Uh, Even Paul himself references his own credentials in his letter to the Philippians. And I'll read just a a portion of Philippians chapter 3, because this is St. Paul describing himself. Philippians 3, verse 4. If anyone else has reason to be confident in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day, a member of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew born of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, 
as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. Yet whatever gains I had, these I've come to regard as loss because of Christ. Which brings us to one of the takeaways from Paul's letter to the Philippians. Paul could count what he had, but he wanted what he found. Hang on to that thought. Paul could count what he had, but he wanted what he found. What we find in this little uh, resume, if you will, is that we find that Paul was recognizing that he was a blue-blooded guy from a good family with the means to educate him. There's a tender scene in Luke chapter 2, verse 46, with Jesus as a 12-year-old teaching the leaders and the teachers of the temple. Remember the story, right? It was a Passover, and Jesus had traveled to Jerusalem for the festival with his family. And we've learned that they would travel in caravans in those days. In earlier podcasts, we've also learned that the men and the women often would travel separately because the men would travel faster. They would meet up at the end of the day, which leads to a scene where Jesus gets left behind. He gets left behind on the way home as Joseph and Mary travel a day's journey away until they realize that he's not with either one of them. And then in their horror, they travel back uh, up from the Jericho Road, back to Jerusalem, searching for the child left and right and finding him teaching the leaders of the synagogue. I call this a tender scene because it's ironic that just in a few short years, a young Paul would receive an education in the same place, an education not afforded Jesus from Nazareth. Acts chapter 22 tells us that Paul studied at the feet of Gamaliel, a highly esteemed teacher of the Jewish law, which is what he said here, right? He's at the top of his game. Well, Paul was also a Roman. This is the other foot in the other world, if you will. And he had a Roman citizenship, which means that Paul had money, which I think also teases us into a new reality when it comes to imagining Paul. Paul was from a place in southern Turkey, which means that he was steeped in religion and commerce. He was exposed to many different ideas. He was exposed to the string of pearls as it would exchange both ideas and money. A very sophisticated person who had two names, Saul and Paul. Uh, Paulus actually was his name, which means small. But this is important to remember that both Saul and Paul were the same person because the book of Acts is a little misleading. It uses the word Saul at first, and then after Saul's conversion on the road to Damascus in Acts chapter 9, then we go to Paul, which would lead later later generations to consider that that Paul was somehow converted away from his Judaism. He makes it really clear in Philippians chapter 3 that he's always a Jewish person. He's always a Pharisee. He's always proud of what he's accomplished. It's just that, remember the theme? He wants what he's found, better than what he has. Uh, I think also this later idea of Paul being converted away from Saul is another way to deal with later anti-Semitism. Now, while we're doing Bible basics, it also stands to point out that we need to say that the book of Acts is about Paul. The letters are by Paul, got it? And so you'll see a lot of synergy between these, the letters that Paul writes in the context. But when you read the letters, you need to know that you're reading someone's mail. He's corresponding with someone who has said something back. So sometimes you've got to infer a message, while the book of Acts is actually a biographical account of what Paul did. So in Acts chapter 16, for instance, we're told that Paul made the second missionary journey or the second business trip now into Europe, and Philippi is the first stop. We're also told that Paul had a business, tent making, but probably more of a tent rep which could be lucrative if you've got a family business, say, with a military contract. In their world, tents could be 
uh, very uh, necessary and very expensive and very numerous. I'm, I'm not so sure this tent-making thing didn't arise because churches didn't want to pay their preachers any money. But let's remember that when he travels to Corinth in Acts chapter 18, he meets his Roman friends like Priscilla and Aquila, who are Jewish people, expelled by the Emperor Claudius, which is something you can find in history and also in the book of Acts. So it's an extra biblical fact. They are expelled. They're living in the Grecian trading city of Corinth, and they got money. And they helped Paul start a church which is a great message for churches like my congregation with affluence and connectivity and the ability to make stuff happen. Another takeaway from a world like Paul's or a life like Paul's is to say, to whom much is given, much is expected. So in the year 51, he arrives in Philippi and soon would change the world with something that he called the gospel Okay, here's another Bible basic idea. I want to step back and note that in just 70 years, the message of Jesus, let's just consider that Jesus' death and resurrection happens around 33 AD, or for for fun, let's round it off and say 30. By the time you get to the second century, the year 100, the message of Jesus would go from rural, Jewish, Sabbath-oriented, to global, urban, Roman, Sunday-oriented, with a hierarchy of of ranks of ministers and organization and bureaucracy, in a large part because of Paul's big idea that he calls the gospel. The gospel. Now, the word gospel gets thrown around a lot uh, in these parts. Goodness gracious, churches will say, well, we preach the gospel, inferring that maybe another church doesn't, or they might even have gospel as part of their name, as full gospel fellowship, uh, or we might even have gospel music. Uh, But it's not really that easy to throw the word gospel around, especially when we use it as a bludgeon in order to hurt someone else. Rather, the gospel in Paul's world had three parts, and this is what I want us to start getting our minds around so we can understand when we read someone's mail called his letter to the Philippians. The gospel had three parts, and you have to have all three. You can't have two, you can't have one, but you also can't have four. You've got to have three, and you can't add or subtract. So let's talk about the three, and then I'll show you practically how it works. The first idea of the gospel is grace. Grace. Paul knew grace upon his conversion, right? In Acts chapter 9, when God knocked him off his horse with a blinding light, and he realized that God wanted him, right? He he wanted him. Rather than to do him in, he wanted him to be hands and feet, if you will, in building uh, this kingdom of God. He realized that he didn't earn it. We just read that in Philippians chapter 3. He knows what he's got, but now he wants what he's been given which is amazing grace. You know, I like to say, though, we're rarely converted in a lightning bolt. And I know that we consider the road to Damascus to almost be a cliche from an immediate conversion experience. And one of the things that I hope that I'll be able to do when this terrible war in Israel is over is to go back and go with my friend Edan to a place near the Lebanese border, which is a stretch of the Damascus Road. And it's very, very near an altar to Caesar Augustus. Uh, Paul would have traveled past it. Jesus would have traveled past it. And I like to think that Paul was on his way to this life-changing and thus world-changing event on this road, uh, on his way to hurt the church. Instead, he ended up saving it instead or or transforming it forever. Uh, Paul knew that he was saved by grace, but I also like to think that this salvation happened in stages. I'm trying to say that in Acts chapter 7, Paul held the coats of men who murdered a young Christian named Stephen, and he watched Stephen die on the outskirts of the Damascus Gate in the the temple precincts. Stephen was one of the first 
deacons ordained and preached boldly to the point that he was branded a heretic. And the religious leaders of the day knew that they weren't allowed by the commandments to murder anyone, but you could also kill someone with rocks because it would be rocks that would be doing the killing, which just shows you how wrongheaded this religion had become. And yet, even as they murdered him and Saul holds their coats, he sees something. Stephen is from a prosperous place like Paul. Stephen is from a good education like Paul. Stephen is blue-blooded like Paul, but Stephen is free. And I wonder if Stephen was in his mind or in the back of his mind, this freedom that Paul longed for. Remember the theme, right? It's not what you have. It's what you've been offered uh, when he rode on the Damascus Road and saw the light. Grace. Paul would take grace into a hungry Roman world. There is a... uh, When you go to Philippi today, and I've seen it, there's a theater there, uh, as often Roman places will have. They have the same stuff everywhere you go. But the theater... Uh, had been intended by the Greek culture to edify and to unify and to create a, a city, if you will, a polis, a place for people to understand not only their role in society, but also their ethical duties to each other. Uh, the theater was in, intended to entertain and instruct. By the time you get to the world of Paul, 51, uh, people begin to torture and kill animals for fun. Uh, you're beginning to see a world that has accomplished great things, built roads that you can see today, and yet there was a moral rot. What grace makes possible is for Roman people to be Jewish on the inside. I'll say that one more time. What grace makes possible is for Roman people living in Philippi to be Jewish on the inside. Grace makes a Gentile person or a Scots-Irish person living in Birmingham, Alabama, me, uh, able to be Jewish on the inside. That's the first component of grace. But remember, there's not just one to three. So let's talk about the second one. The second one is time. So in Paul recognized that in Christ, God had entered time. Okay, Bible basics. This is fun to tell you. So one of the one of the ways that you can think about the Bible is the Bible is an invention because the, the books in the Hebrew scriptures, many of the books, the earliest books, were written from the Bronze Age. And if you were to look at other writings alongside other Bronze Age writings alongside the Bible, you would see that they have no concept of time. They don't care about it. They think in circles or wheels. Uh, You might read an Assyrian relief that would say that the king reigned for a thousand years, and everyone knew that he didn't really reign a thousand years, and no one really cared because they didn't care about time. But if you start with Genesis chapter 12, which is on the other side of the prehistory of Genesis 1 through 11, with the call of Abraham, you have a man named Abraham who steps out in faith on a promise that he's going to have a kid, which won't happen for a long, long time, uh, but one day will. And while he's walking in faith, he grows. And then one day his dreams come true, and then he dies in time. So you've got the story of a man in faith with God acting alongside of him in his own time, a linear time. He's born, he lives, he dies. The reason why we study these old things is not because we're particularly interested in history, although I am. Rather, we study these things because if God did something for Abraham or Paul or the citizens of Philippi, God will do it for me. But that's just the first thought when it comes to time. The Hebrews also had a gift, which was they called the day of the Lord. Prophets promised this all the time, uh, promised the day of the Lord, and it's good news. Actually, the book of Revelation, which we'll get to one day, that weird unloved book, that'll be a fun Bible basics, is also about the day of the Lord, which is the end of time, which, of course, you know, Hollywood has made lots of scary movies about and people worry about. But the day of the Lord is good news. The day of the Lord means all tears are dried. The day of the Lord means that all the low places are raised up. The day of the Lord means that justice will happen. 
The day of the Lord means that bombs won't fall on innocent people, right? The day of the Lord means that there will be justice and peace among nations. The day of the Lord means that hungry bellies will be filled and there won't be food deserts in our cities. And anything that keeps us up at night, anything that makes our heart heavy, those things will be removed and the day of the Lord will be heaven. But with Christ entering time, Paul suddenly understood that time was transformed. He was able to take his own his own very blue-blooded and intentional and zealous Jewish worldview and see it through a new lens, which is a Christ-centered rescue mission in time. I don't have a better analogy than this, but and I can't find one, but I'm going to go with this again. I like to use the analogy of D-Day, June 6, 1944, when our troops were able to secure a beachhead on Omaha Beach, then the war in the Western theater anyway, that part of World War II was in effect over. Okay, it wasn't over in 1944. It wouldn't be over until the next year. A lot of things would have to happen. A winter offensive on behalf of the Germans, lots of bloodshed, lots of hardship, a war with the East, lots of death in in the USSR. I mean, keep going, keep going. Lots of invasions. It'd be terrible. But when our troops secured the beach in Normandy, the war was in effect over, meaning you could see it from here, which is to say there's a lot of wrong in the world, but there's a lot of right in it too. Jesus would call this the kingdom of God, and we have a battle to do, and our battle is to find it and to live it and to make it happen so that how do we find God in time? Well, we can find God in time in church, of course, but we can also find God in time in sunrise. We can find God in time in the eyes of our children. We can find God in time in in forgiveness. We can find God in time in a thank you note. We can find God in time any time that we choose to love. So this morning in a sermon, because this is the first of the year, we were thinking about 2024, and we all have some sense of dread about this year because so many things have happened. And one new word in our lexicon is misinformation. We use it all the time, right? Which means that we don't know who's lying to us. Uh, our news feed may be lying to us. Our leaders may be lying to us. Robots are lying to us now. Who's, you know, everybody's lying to us. And what I said to the congregation is this, let this be our compass. If it's got love in it, it's got God in it. If it's got love in it, it's got God in it. And that's about the best we can do in an age where it's hard to find God in time, but God is here. And Christ made that rescue operation possible. Another way to say it is this, far too many Christians wait around until heaven when they die. Don't worry about heaven. Take that off your worry plate and find heaven now. There are gifts of God for God's people in the everyday, if we'll just look to find them, those little things that I just listed a minute ago, you can find heaven in time. Look around. That's number two. So remember, we've got two so far, two of the three. We're saved by grace, not anything we could do, or don't worry about what you accomplished. Worry about what God has given you, right? Don't worry about what you have. Worry about what you've been given, right, which is something that you can't earn on your own. That's grace. Second, Christ came in time to transform it, which is to say we don't have to wait for heaven until we die. And then number three, it makes us family. If we live this way, we become a family. In this new year, there's a a Netflix special called Blue Zones that I commend to anybody. It's just interesting because apparently there are blue zones of people uh, who've been living over a, a century for a long, long time, meaning communities of centenarians, people that just usually just cash out over 100. They eat well, they eat Mediterranean food, basically, 
and they live, you know, in community groups and they and they exercise and they do all these things. But one of the commonalities, whether you're from Okinawa or Sardinia or or Indonesia or wherever you're from, one of the commonalities of a blue zone is is a faith community. The, these people all have some some sort of faith community that binds them together. And I see, I think Paul saw the genius of this in a Roman world that was fast becoming disconnected and bored. The the pagan Roman gods were not little g gods were not cutting it when it comes to bringing people together to protect the children it was they was not cutting it when it comes to bringing people together to find this this kingdom of god amongst each other we need each other and the healthiest people that we know are people who live in a web of connectivity uh, uh, the people that we know are the healthiest have somebody who cares what we're doing okay that's the three that's 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 a bible basic right there the gospel has three constituents parts. You have to have all three. Giving examples how you mess it up. If you only have two, like grace and family, then you can become a club all up in your head. If you only have two, like time and family, you might exclude others from grace and become sort of ex- some exclusive mean little church. If you only have grace and time, then you're alone, which is a problem. And Paul uses this gospel in three parts to solve it in Philippians chapter 4, beginning with the second verse. Now, remember, we're reading someone else's mail, so there are names in here, hard to pronounce names, and they're also, it's a one-way conversation, so we don't know what these two women had done with each other, but what had happened was they understood grace, and they understood time, but they didn't understand family. So their names are Yodia and Syntyche, and I always love it when we read stuff like this in church, because people will say, hey, Rich, how do I pronounce Euodia and Syntyche, and I'll say, you know what? It doesn't matter because they don't know either. So if you've just got to sin, sin boldly. But I'm pretty sure that's how you pronounce it. Paul writes, Philippians 4, chapter 2, I urge Euodia and I urge Syntyche to be of the same mind of the Lord. That's the family, the same mind. Have the mind of Christ, not be on the same political spectrum, not have the same social opinions, but simply have the mind of Jesus be of the same mind of the Lord. Yes, and I ask you also, my loyal companion, to help these women, for they have struggled beside me in the work of the gospel, now that we know what that means, together with Clement and the rest of my co-workers, whose names are in the book of life. Okay, you can't have two, you gotta have three. You can't have one, you gotta have three, but you can't add to it either. No, in Paul's letter to the Philippians, uh, but which, by the way, is a composite of several letters. We're pretty sure about this. While you're reading this, there's a guy named Epaphroditus that appears at the beginning that Paul sends to them. And then Epaphroditus at the end, he thanks Epaphroditus for bringing gifts to him, which means that Epaphroditus has been back and forth and back and forth and back and forth. So it can't be one letter. It's actually just a bunch of them sort of mashed up together. But in, in Paul's letter, you can deduce that someone has come through town after the year 51, after Paul has started a church there and said, hey, you got, you Romans are great. You've got this gospel. Now add circumcision and make it better. Well, this is why Paul listed his, his credentials in Philippians chapter 3, because just a few verses before he says this in Philippians 3 verse 2, beware of the dogs, beware of the evil workers. Beware of those who mutilate the flesh, for it is we who are the circumcision who worship the Spirit of God and boast in Christ Jesus and have no confidence in the flesh, even though I too have reason for confidence in the flesh. And then he lists his credentials, which is to simply say, once again, these people are now Roman on the outside, but Jewish on the inside. 
You don't have to add to the gospel to make it something that you can earn. You can only take what God gives. Remember, don't worry about what you've earned. Think about what God is offering uh, for free. Now, this might lead us to conclude that that Philippi was a feel-good little church. I mean, it's such a happy, hopeful letter. My favorite verse is Philippians chapter 4, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. And and you might be tempted to think that, that perhaps Philippi was Paul's favorite church, and it may well have been, but it was also a tough place to live the gospel there. Oh, it was tough. This toughness started almost a century before in 42 BC when the combined armies of Mark Antony and Octavian, and Octavian was Julius Caesar's adopted nephew, Julius Caesar, who had been murdered on the floor of the Senate, and so not adopted nephew, rather, adopted son and nephew, and so adopted in the succession, they met Brutus and Cassius in a battle of 200,000 men, Brutus and Cassius being the murderers of Julius Caesar. And in Philippi, in effect, Rome ceased to be a republic and became an empire. What's more important historically is that Octavian, who was later known as Augustus, the Caesar at the time of the birth of Christ, would have to do something with 200,000 men, or I should say the ones who survived the battle, let's say 100,000 on both sides, have to do something for them because you've got soldiers now uh, who you don't want to turn against you. So he gave these soldiers land and pensions so that Philippi was military and fiercely patriotic. Think about an American city who might be defined by uh, a military base like Fort Benning or Fort Sill or Pensacola Naval Air Station, and that'll get you, get you thinking about Philippi. Add to the fact that, that Romans had sort of a sameness. And if you've ever traveled to a Roman place, and this could be Roman Britain, this could be Roman Spain, this could be Roman North Africa, you you know what I'm saying here. There's always a sameness in a Roman place. I almost don't have to go to a Roman place when I travel to the Holy Land because I've been there, done that. There's always a theater, always a bathhouse, always a, a, a cardo, a, a main street, always a market, right? Romans were like the kind of person who travels the world and only wants to eat at Applebee's. They want the same thing everywhere they go. And there's there's a sameness here that will be dangerous for the church in Philippi because the gospel makes you different. Remember what I said, Roman on the outside, but Jewish on the inside, which means that you might be different than your neighbors. I want to read just a passage from Acts chapter 16, which is about Paul's time in Philippi, right? The letter is from Paul, but Acts is about Paul. And this is about Paul and a man named Silas who are wandering. I'll paraphrase it first before we get to the Philippi part. They're wandering through the marketplace, and they're they're chased by a slave girl who has a spirit of divination, and her friends make money, her her owners make money off of her. Uh, She's sort of a a sideshow, if you will, or a carnival act. And so Paul, very much annoyed, uh, exercises this demon from her. Now, again, Paul's not Jesus here. Paul's a person, and you'll see that Paul from time to time has a temper. So I don't know that he was really feeling all the love when he performs this uh, miracle, but he does, and it gets him into trouble. So Paul and Silas find themselves before the magistrates in Philippi, and this is Acts chapter 16, verse 19. But when her owners saw that their hope of making money was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the authorities. You can feel the, the violence in the text, right? And when they brought them before the magistrates, they said, These men are disturbing our city. They are Jews and are advocating customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to adopt or observe. The crowd joined in attacking them 
And the magistrates had them stripped of their clothing and ordered them to be beaten with rods. And after they had given them a severe flogging, they threw them into prison and ordered the jailer to keep them securely. And following these instructions, he put them in the innermost cell and fastened their feet in the stocks. Yike! Being different can get you in trouble in a place like Philippi. You know, you keep reading in Paul's that the second missionary journey, the second business trip. He goes down to Corinth, which is a prosperous port city, much more like New Orleans. If if Philippi is the Pensacola Naval Air Station, then Corinth is just a body port town and people live and let live. And Paul will be dragged before a magistrate again for doing something different again. But in Corinth, it's like, meh, who cares? Live and let live. You Jews work it out on your own time. So in Philippi, it's going to cost them. To say rejoice again, and again I say rejoice, is going to have a very, very heavy, exact, if you will, a heavy, heavy cost for being different in a world that doesn't expect you to be different. So how can you be happy in a world like that? How do you find deep joy? How do you how do you take on this gospel when it comes at great risk? How do you risk losing family and friends or maybe even being beat up and thrown in jail? St. Paul wrote his letter to the Philippians from jail to people who were beaten up and found in jail. And the answer is found in the letter and a little piece of what I call scriptural archaeology. So many Bibles will chop up Philippians chapter 2, or I should say, put verses 6 to 11 in a smaller margin so that you know that it's different. It's it's a hymn that they were already singing, and I'll read it to you. I'll begin with verse 5. Philippians chapter 2, verse 5. Let the same mind be in you that was in Christ Jesus. And here's where the hymn starts. Who, and I wish I knew the tune, though he was in the form of God, did not regard equality with God as something to be exploited, but emptied himself, taking the form of a slave, being born in human likeness, and being found in human form, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even on a cross. Therefore God also highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bend in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. It's a song. It's a song they were already singing, and this is cool. It's only 18 years after Easter, and they've already got a song. It's 18 years after Easter and hundreds and hundreds of miles away in a very Roman town where it cost not to be Roman. They knew Jesus died for them and they could live the gospel and find joy. Don't worry about what you've earned. Worry about what God gives you, right? Which is grace, amazing grace. Well, that's why I think this little letter is fun to read and it's fun to understand. So when you read Philippians, remember you're reading someone's mail. We don't always know the conversation on the other side, but the gospel is a lens through which we solve problems. And as we head through 2024, who for sure can ever say what's going to come around the corner? But if we remember grace and we remember time and we remember family, we'll know if it's got love in it, it's got God in it. I've got a little bit of a postscript here because you can travel to Philippi today. And when you go there, it's a UNESCO World Heritage Site because of three late Roman basilica that are built there. These were built between the 
oh, say the 5th and the 7th centuries. Late Romans, we call Byzantines. They wouldn't know what that word means. They would just see themselves as Romans. But by this time, Rome is thoroughly Christianized to the point that there's an elaborate church and an elaborate structure and a lot of money. And the Bishop of Philippi is a fabulously wealthy uh, clergy person. And there are churches there that rival the Hagia Sophia in Istanbul. There are churches there with marvelous domes and arches, and they're trying to recreate these even today. They've got scaffolding up, and they're trying to take the toppled stones from an earthquake, stack these back up, and create something that you can visit and see, so that some 500 years after Paul, there are these magnificent houses of worship. Only one problem. Paul didn't come to Philippi to start that. Now, I think that's kind of a sad story. I mean, the, 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 the churches are what we do. Grace is what God does. Don't worry about what you can do. Worry about what God gives us. Oh, I love a pretty church as much as anyone, but let's remember that churches are not the end, but the means to an end, the means to our finding God's own amazing grace. Let's don't make our own monuments, if you will, all that we leave on this earth, but rather let's let God make us, us on the outside and Jewish on the inside. Well, thanks, everybody. So in our next podcast chapter, we're going to go back into the Old Testament or the Hebrew Scriptures and look at the prophet Amos. See you then.